I've had incredibly colossal failures. I've had far more failures and successes. Uh, most of my investments were failures. Most of my startups were failures. I had one startup that I started that went public and I didn't make any money. So, Naval, uh, you know, we do this podcast called Outliers, and uh, the idea is to have deep uh, conversations with people uh, who are change makers and who are passionate and who are outliers themselves. Now, uh-huh. you know, I've been uh, talking to so many people uh, in India and from outside India, and uh, I've always been fascinated by what you built and how do you, how you go about uh you know life and uh, how do you conduct yourself as an entrepreneur and as a disruptor so that, that's why i was so keen and i was chasing you so hard to have this conversation so thank you for that if i could just enter the conversation uh novel by asking you uh you have seen uh, so many founders and you have watched uh investors startups uh what do you think works and what doesn't uh i think that's a really hard question to answer because every every found a great founder and every great startup is unique uh it's like people you know if you get to know people well you realize that no two people you've ever met in your life are even vaguely similar they're, they're not substitutes for each other you can't say i'll replace this friend with that friend they're just unique uh so i think startups and founders are the same way they're just unique and the same way as you go through life you develop a taste for what kinds of people you like to associate with similarly you develop a taste for what kinds of founders uh and companies you like to associate with so i think it's just incredibly difficult to generalize that said you know most founders are it's what you would expect most of the successful founders are very very smart they're very competent uh they're capable uh they usually know their field they usually have some deep talent either they're incredibly good at sales or they're really good at uh, technology um they have conviction which and confidence which usually comes from knowing what they're doing not fake confidence uh you know uh, bravado uh and then they just have to be lucky <laughs> which is that last the last bit is the hardest part and so that requires some market timing and just some some straight up luck uh and of course everyone lives on persistence the you know it takes a long time to build anything great so they have to be persistent but something like persistence is very hard to figure out in early meetings it's something that you get data from by looking at the person's life by spending time with them <laughs> and just by kind of seeing how it plays out that's why i i feel like i i put up this tweet recently that being a uh experienced angel investor is like knowing one of the six lottery ticket numbers in advance <laughs> you know the other five you still don't know but if you know one it improves your odds drastically and mm-hmm. you should play the lottery mm-hmm. but it's uh, if you know one of the numbers uh, and if you don't then it's all completely up to chance but there's still just a, a, there's a huge chance component to the whole thing there's no no easy answers <laughs> no i mean but very well said uh now you you've been uh, an entrepreneur yourself now how has this journey been for you in terms of uh, growing up uh, as an entrepreneur uh, have there been failures uh, how do how do you characterize your own journey as an entrepreneur uh, being in the business of entrepreneurship yeah i mean i'm still an entrepreneur angelus is still a startup and i run it as an entrepreneur Uh, I think modern entrepreneurship is a gift. It's actually very easy compared to traditional entrepreneurship. Mm-hmm. Traditional op- entrepreneurship is you risk your life savings and you open a store down the street and you know you struggle 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 with your family day and night. And if it succeeds, you make a living and often it fails. Uh I think modern entrepreneurship 
you go raise money from a bunch of people, you get in the press. Yeah, sure, you work hard, but if you win, you win big and you you have retirement money or uh, <laughs> fortune money compared to most people. Hmm. So I don't consider it that hard by comparison. Uh, the hard parts, uh, though, that are, I mean, compared to being an investor or compared to sort of being a, uh, a stable, it's a lot harder. Hmm. And, and, and the difficulty actually mainly comes from the stress that you put on your, yourself. Hmm. And uh, I consider, you know, when you start a company, you're basically selling investors, you're selling other uh, people to come work with you, you're selling customers, you're selling a story to everybody. Yeah. And so you're t- every time you sell a story, you sort of uh, trap yourself a little bit more, you take on a little bit more weight on your shoulders, mm-hmm. and you can never let your guard down. You can't suddenly turn to them and start confiding, actually, this is really hard, I don't think this will work, or I don't <laughs> know if this will work. You take on that little bit of stress every time, and I think over a long period of time, it wears you down. So I think a lot of it is just sort of stress as to how seriously you take the whole thing. Mm-hmm. So the entrepreneurs I find who who deal the best with it, uh, you know, they basically, they, they do a great job, they do the work, but they don't get too attached to the outcome, which is easier said than done. I mean, you have to be a really good mm-hmm. Buddhist to, to get away with that, but I don't think most people can. Mm-hmm. Uh, but mm-hmm. I think entrepreneurs, because of that, they go through a lot more stress than, say, an investor would, because as an investor, you're diversified, you have mm-hmm. a lot of uh, you have a lot of uh, investments. Mm. That's why I always think, like when investors say, "Oh, we feel the entrepreneurs were just like the entrepreneurs," mm. uh, they're being they're being disingenuous. Mm. <laughs> I don't think that's correct. I think any any investor mm. who's saying that has never been an entrepreneur. Mm. It's mm. far more stressful to be an entrepreneur than mm. to be an investor. But but ultimately, it's very very rewarding too because once you work for yourself, it's mm-hmm. really hard to work for somebody else. Mm-hmm. Once you've uh, you know had the opportunity to capture the upside in what you're doing, once you've mm-hmm. had the ability to realize your vision the way you want it, Mm -hmm. uh, you just don't want it any other way. So entrepreneurship is one of those jobs, just Mm -hmm. like investing is one of those jobs Mm -hmm. that spoils you for anything else. (laughs) And if if you end up doing it once or twice, you're probably Mm -hmm. going to be doing it for the rest of your life. Okay, you are telling this to a just-born rookie founder, so I'm listening. you, what you said, uh, Naval, about uh, being dispassionate uh, and not worry too much about outcome. Uh, I mean, it's easier said uh, than than done. Like like you yourself said, it, it's tough. How do you practice that? Uh, all forms of uh, difficulty, uh, whether you have a health problem or whether you have a money problem or whether you have a you know a friend or family problem, all forms of difficulty are an opportunity to work on your internal state and to improve how you react to these things. Mm-hmm. So entrepreneurship is a long struggle. It's a, it's a journey. And, you know, one way to treat it is to kind of ignore it and just say, I'm just going to power through it. <laughs> and maybe that works when you're 20-something, but when you're 30-something, you'll probably start burning out just from the stress. Mm. So I think it's an opportunity to, to do the practice. And what the practice is, is it varies for every single person because mm-hmm. each person is unique internally. I think the oldest wisdom in the world is the uh, uh, the, the phrase above the temple of uh, Delphi, the, where the oracle was in Greece, mm-hmm. and it just said, "Know thyself, right? Know yourself." Yes. Uh, and so that that's different for every human being. Every person got here in a slightly different way, thinks in a different way, mm-hmm. has different phobias and fears and failure mechanisms and different strengths mm-hmm. and greatnesses. So you you have to sort of unravel yourself and figure out. Why, why am I stressed out over this? Why am I angry over this? Mm. Why am I unhappy over this? Mm. And you can have a mindfulness or meditation practice, which is now suddenly very popular in Silicon Valley. Mm-hmm. Uh, or you can just spend time with friends and family. You can journal or write. 
you can go into groups of other people, mm. other CEO groups where you get some support. Mm. Um, this is where good board members can be helpful. You can take vacations mm-hmm. or you can just remind yourself, hey, I'm, I'm going to die and none of this matters. <laughs> right? Because when I die, my business goes away, my work goes away and everything I've done will eventually go away. Mm. So what's mm. the big deal? Mm. So I, I think you, you, just, you just learn through the struggle not to take it too seriously. Mm. Uh, mm. Because if you, don't, if you don't learn that, uh, then you better hope you get lucky and win quick. But in my experience, there are very few quick wins. Have have there been, uh, I mean, let me use adjective. You know, have there been colossal failures uh, in 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 you know in in your journey itself? Oh, I've had incredibly colossal failures. I've had far more failures and successes. Uh, most of my investments were failures. Most of my startups were failures. I had one startup that I started that went public and I didn't make any money because of the way the deal was structured, and that was a huge failure for me. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I would say most of my life has been failures with a few successes here and there. Mm-hmm. And the worst part about failures is that they arrive suddenly. <laughs> like everything seems like it's you know going great, and then bad news comes suddenly, but good news takes time. Good mm-hmm. news comes from just pounding away year after year after year after year. Mm-hmm. So if you can't if you can't adapt or adjust to failures, you will not get anywhere in life. Uh, and I think all of the successes that you get in life, and they're far and few between, they come from grinding it out and mm. doing the work. And, th- and that only comes out from having had failures, so you know mm. how to be better. Mm. Uh, mm. And, I, and I think, ironically, the, the, one, the other learning I have is that the successes only arrive once you've sort of given up on them, once you no longer <laughs> want them or, or value them as much. Because it takes so long mm. to be successful at anything that at some point you can no longer have sustained yourself to that goal mm. by being goal-oriented. Mm. So if you're goal-oriented, you'll give up after a while. Eventually, you'll just be too hard. Mm. But if you're process-oriented, if you actually enjoy what you're doing, then you won't give up and you have a chance of getting a goal out of it. But mm. when you're process-oriented, you actually don't care about the goal that much yeah. uh, or, or at all. Mm. So it's mm. sort of ironic. You, know, mm. you need the goal to get started, mm. but if the goal is what's fueling you, you mm. won't make it. Uh, the the other question I have, Naval, is uh, about conflicts that some founders talk about. Uh, you know, like they they are individuals, then they are founders, uh, family man, uh, and and so on. Uh, is it really difficult to compartmentalize? Uh, how how do you do that? How have you done that? Like yeah, it's a very difficult thing. I don't. Hmm. I don't think my friends or family hmm. even yet fully understand what I do. Hmm. Uh, and <laughs> some days I don't even understand what I do. Hmm. And uh, I, I, I can't say I'm good at this. I've been bad at this. I, I draw a complete wall between my friend life and my, and my personal life and my business mm-hmm. life. Um, and so, for example, I don't go to business dinners. Uh, I don't go to business networking events. Mm-hmm. Uh, I will not socialize with people for business. I will only socialize if I think it's actually pleasurable. Mm-hmm. Uh, I try not to travel for business. The, the, the trip itself has to be worthwhile to me from a personal perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I draw a very strong distinction. I know there are a lot of people who, after a busy day at work, uh, then they're going to go to dinner with a bunch of entrepreneurs, yeah. uh, and they're going to they're going to they're going to trade notes on startups, or they're going to go to dinner with a VC or to a business networking event. They're going to pretend that's fun, or even when they take a trip, it's to a conference. Yeah, uh, that's a that's a road to ruin in my mind. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just don't see how you can be happy long term doing that because. Mm. 
you in, in fact if anything i'm trying to do the opposite which is i i basically only do business with if i can help it mm-hmm. with people that i like and that i have shared values with and sometimes i end up doing business with people that I, don't, I end up not liking as much or not having shared values with but i try and undo that as quickly as possible uh because uh that's the source of stress that's the source of work Mm. The definition of work to me is mm. a set of things that you have to do that you don't want to do. Mm. And the worst kind of work is having to spend time with someone that you don't want to spend time with. Mm. So as soon as you identify, mm. oh, I don't I don't love spending time with this person and I have to, you know, it's not someone that I would hang out with or mm. spend time with the rest of my life that mm. can't see them being a friend, mm. then uh, I think you, you want to get out of that relationship as quickly as practicable. Uh, and how practical it is is going to vary from business to business, but uh, and from your in your personal situation. But I'm lucky enough that I've come far enough that I can choose <laughs> who I spend time with. Mm-hmm. And you know, I would say today, like I probably spend seventy or eighty percent of my time with people that I want to spend it with, and mm-hmm. you know, of the remaining twenty, thirty percent, most are in the unknown bucket. I just don't know. That's serendipity. Maybe they'll work out well. Maybe it won't. Uh, but hmm. I am ruthless about my time. I will hmm. not spend time on anything that I don't want to. Hmm. It's hmm. very. That's why it was very hard to pin me down for this podcast <laughs> because I, I just my 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 default state my default in life is this is from Derek Sivers who was interviewed the Tim, Tim Ferriss podcast. But he said he said either you say hell yes to something like you're really excited about it, or you say no. And if you're not really excited about something, the answer is no. So I really try and follow that hmm. uh, both hmm. with people and with events. But hmm. my advice to early entrepreneurs is don't bother doing business networking. I think business hmm. networking is a complete waste of time. Hmm. And I know uh, that there are people and companies that have popularized this concept because hmm. it serves them and their business model well. Hmm. But the reality is if you're, if you're building something interesting, mm-hmm. you will always have more people who want to know you than you want to know them. Hmm. Uh, trying to build business relationships well in advance of doing business I think is just a waste of time. Uh, mm, I, mm, I, I'm much more comfortable with the philosophy of be a maker, mm, make something that is interesting and that people want, mm, uh, show your craft, practice your craft, mm, and the right people will eventually find you. Mm, uh, mm, you should not mm, have to go find them on top of everything. I, I find that really interesting. Uh, th- I mean, uh, have there been? I mean, has it been tough uh, for you? Uh, you know, be- because you choose to follow this path in terms of. you know like like the way you said you are very ruthless about uh, some of these things no networking if if your heart is not there and and so on i mean have you have you have you ever felt that you lost out on anything because of this or any potential i don't know i mean maybe maybe but i don't i don't think so part of it is that this leaves me the time so that when something important comes up i can commit to it i haven't wasted my time or frittered my energy away on inconsequential things uh part of it is it just keeps me happier and the the important thing you have in this life is you have time that's that's your life your life is just a series of events and time uh it's not a, about money money is just little little stacks of paper that you can't take with you you need money beyond a certain point uh to survive mm. and to not struggle uh but you get there if you're an entrepreneur and you're smart you will i guarantee you you will die with money in the bank <laughs> uh, and you will you will die wishing for more time and mm. the discount rate of your time is the the rate at which you would swap time for money mm. uh will change drastically as you get older and mm. on your deathbed mm. you would give it all up for one more minute so mm. i think mm. the obsession with uh you know oh am i going to miss out 
Uh, I actually just yesterday talked to a friend mm. and I told him I think I've switched from fear of missing out to gratitude on missing out. <laughs> I'm grateful <laughs> to miss out on something these days because mm. it relieves me of the pressure of having to pretend like I, you know, I wanted, I had to do that thing and I had to make that money or I had to be successful at that thing. I mm. think that's highly overrated. Mm. Um, mm. You just have, you, you just got one life. So if you're not, if you're not enjoying mm. this very day, if mm. you're not enjoying this very existence, if you're not enjoying this very moment that you mm. missed it there is no tomorrow mm. that it suddenly somehow things are going to change and get better mm. whatever state of mind and whatever state of happiness uh, and fulfillment that you're in today is the same state you're going to be in tomorrow because you're conditioning your brain you're training yourself like an animal mm. that's what your life is and so it's not like you're going to suddenly make a bunch of money and then turn around and figure out how to be happy overnight. Um, so I, I, just, I just don't believe in fear of missing out. Uh, I think there's there's always going to be more opportunities than you have time for. If you look at Warren Buffett, you know, he, he treats it like he's only going to make 20 investments in an entire life. Yep. And so that kind of helps center him. I, you know, I used to work really, really hard as an entrepreneur in my 20s. And I mm-hmm. look back and I realize most of that time was wasted. Um, I wasn't actually working that hard. I was What I was doing was I was just talking a lot. I was in a lot of meetings that were a waste of time. <laughs> I wasn't very focused. I wasn't very effective. I was just running in place really, really fast. When, when, you, look at your, when you look at your experience in anything, mm. whether it's in school mm. or work or even relationships, mm. 99% of your time that you spent in those was wasted. Most mm. of those school papers that you did, uh, you didn't end up studying chemistry or history, and yep. so, or you didn't end up becoming a chemist or becoming a historian. And those are things that today you could look up in Google or you've forgotten long since, mm. uh, or even work, lots of jobs where you did projects that didn't go anywhere or the company itself failed. So most of life is failure. Mm. And mm. so given that, where you apply your energy Mm. It's far more important than how much energy you put out. The direction of the energy matters much more than the intensity. So mm. people mm. who are doing a hundred different things, and, and you know, someone who says, "I'm busy, I'm busy, I'm busy." Uh, if you're really so busy that you're running from thing to thing, then you're just unfocused. You're not making good choices, and you're just wasting your time. Mm. It's completely legitimate to say you're busy as a way to get people off your back. <laughs> so I think it's good for that. It's good as a way of saying, "Look, mm. I'm busy. Leave me alone." Mm. But really, when you're saying, "I'm busy," is what you're saying is this is not a priority yeah. for me. Yeah. And you should have very few priorities. If you're actually so busy that your calendar is scheduled and you're running from thing to thing to thing, then you're just running on a treadmill. You're, yeah. you're sprinting on a treadmill as fast as you can. You're not actually going anywhere. Hmm. Um, hmm. I think it's, uh, it's hmm. far more important to be deliberate to pick your direction hmm. uh, and, and then to, to you know move with haste to the direction you've picked, which you probably shouldn't be trying to do more than one big thing at a time. You should just be doing that well. Hmm. It's, it's easy for me to say because I'm a multitasker. I like yes. to do lots of things and I always have multiple projects going hmm. at any given time. Hmm. And that's a disease that comes from back when I was living in a time of scarcity and I wanted lots and lots of options. Mm-hmm. But as I get older, I realize it would have just been better to pick one or two big things and just focus mm-hmm. on those mm-hmm. uh, and not always be trying to open up options. How was uh, growing up for you, Naval? Uh uh because uh, sometimes when i you know uh, while interviewing uh, founders and even uh, business leaders uh, when i ask them uh, this question uh, they they come up with some very interesting anecdotes that uh, i mean during their formative years that kind of shaped who they are today uh, do you believe in that and are there uh, you know things uh, in while you were growing up that that you believe have have made you what you are today 
Uh, absolutely. I mean, I, I think your personality, your intentions, your values, the way you're set up are mostly baked and done by the time you're 13 to 15 years old. Uh, and then after that, you know, we do change, but after that change takes a long time. Uh, the formative years are very, very important. Uh, that said, I'm not sure how much relevance it has to other people hmm. because it's not like you can go back and change your formative years. <laughs> and uh, my my formative years came through some struggle, so it's not like you're going to inflict struggle on your children mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, uh, to, to try and make them form a certain way. Hmm. Uh, I grew up in India until I was nine. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, not that well off, but not poor either. Uh, mm-hmm. And that was great because it gave me a, a powerful perspective mm-hmm. on, uh, you know, what's important in life. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are a lot of people struggling in India. It's still mm-hmm. a very poor country. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that really means that when you come to the United States, where mm-hmm. people have a lot of abundance, uh, mm-hmm. you don't get spoiled too easily and you're still grateful for small things. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that was important. Mm-hmm. And then when we were in the U.S., we didn't actually have a very easy life. Mm-hmm. I was basically... Uh, extremely independent from the age of nine years old onwards. Mm-hmm. I basically set my own schedule. I did my own things, and I didn't. I didn't have a childhood at mm-hmm. that point. I was, I was essentially fully functioning as an adult, mm-hmm. uh, which was good because it helped me grow up and become very confident, very independent. But <clears throat> bad in that it gave me sort of this uh, narrative, internal narrative that it was me versus the world, <laughs> uh, and that helped me mm-hmm. overachieve in my twenties. But it's it's no way to connect to other people. Yeah. Uh, so just kind of have to discard those internal narratives later on. Mm. Mm. Uh, mm. I, I would I would say you know don't you're not going to inflict suffering on your children to make them more successful. Yeah. If you do, that's that's pretty lousy parenting. True. And you can't go back and change your own childhood. Mm-hmm. So the, the thing to focus on is who and what you are now. Mm-hmm. It's to be aware that what you are now is a product of the conditioning and mm-hmm. experiences of your childhood. And there's no reason you have to be locked into that. Mm-hmm. You can remake yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, that's, it, there's, this, uh, there's this model that we go through as human beings where a whole set of things happens to us in our childhood. Mm-hmm. And we decide what's good and what's bad. Mm-hmm. And then we spend the rest of our life trying to recreate the good things from our childhood and avoid the bad things from our childhood. Mm-hmm. Well, I would argue that the experiences from today are even more valid than the experiences from your childhood. So even your judgments of good and bad and your behavior patterns mm-hmm. uh, should not just be the leftover ones from childhood because that era is gone. Mm-hmm. Uh, instead, you should focus on what's happening now mm-hmm. and how mm-hmm. you want to be now mm-hmm. and die to every moment. Mm-hmm. So let the moment happen and then die to it. So <laughs> you're not obsessed with that moment trying mm-hmm. to recapture it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you just kind of have to accept each day as it comes. And mm-hmm. so I think that focusing on one's childhood is only useful to the extent that you're undoing it Hmm. uh, Hmm. to the extent that you're forgetting about it Hmm. and that you're discarding the things that are not useful Hmm. to your childhood Hmm. anymore Hmm. I actually almost never think back to my childhood it's to me it's like a very Hmm. hazy Hmm. comic strip style memory that probably happened to somebody else in in general I I think the past is overrated I I don't even spend time going back and looking at photos or anything like that Hmm. I think that you know the past is just a, a, a strange little low resolution construct stored in your head no one's ever gone back to the past no one ever can uh and whatever lessons you learn from the past are deeply ingrained in you and probably overlearned mm. would be mm. my argument mm. uh so i i just don't I, I literally do not see the point of reflecting on the past mm. i don't think there's any value in it you know final uh, 10 12 minutes i have uh and i must ask you a couple of business questions uh sure. Uh, one of the things is uh, I remember reading early about uh, 
angelist and and what you were building and one of the things that i still remember is that uh democratizing uh venture investing and you 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 wanted to change that and 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 it was a massive disruption uh and and and, and when 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 you started building angelist and the whole online investing and and things like that uh how far have you achieved uh the so called democratization uh and how do you assess uh, that part i mean how successful uh, have you been on on that front yeah so i've never used the word disruption okay that, okay that's something that the media always uses and, and likes to throw in cuz they like to paint the narrative hmm. Hmm. Uh, and that's fine. Media is in the storytelling business. Um, for me, it was not about disruption or even democratization. Mm-hmm. It was just about improvement, transparency, making it easier, making it better. Hmm. Um, the actual democratization is heavily limited legally in the United States. You know, true crowdfunding only just became recently legal, and there are lots and lots of rules and laws in the way that prevent it from being easy or something. that you know most companies want to use hmm. uh, and in in india it's even harder hmm. uh, india makes it very very difficult for hmm. non rich people to do any kind of investing yeah so i think the democratization is unfortunately mostly limited but for regulatory reasons because in the past there have been scammers mm-hmm. uh, not necessarily tech business but in yes. other industries yes. who have scammed people out of money yes. and so because of that the, the nature of government regulators say never again and they just close off this huge avenue yes. which is sad because uh, a lot of money is getting made in the technology business mm. it's just the rich getting richer mm. so in that sense i think it should be more open more democratized to people mm. we've definitely moved the needle on it if mm-hmm. you come to uh, if you look at angelist in the us mm-hmm. we have created hundreds of small venture capitalists where none existed before mm. through our syndicates program mm. uh, and we've created funds mm-hmm. where a person can go and for $25,000 they can essentially invest in a blue chip fund mm-hmm. angel investments only pay carry no management fees and have full transparency online mm-hmm. whereas in the U- and normally in the US you would have to commit millions of dollars mm-hmm. you would have to go through institutional fund of funds that would then go into funds which would then go to seed investors <laughs> yeah. you would pay layers and layers and layers of fees to carry yeah. we've cut out all the fees we've cut out most of the carry mm-hmm. we've uh we've given direct access so i think we've done a lot but mm-hmm. we can still do a lot more mm-hmm. the reality is that most of the people out there don't even seem to know about our funds mm-hmm. you know, if you go mm-hmm. to angel.co/funds you mm-hmm. can see that for $25,000 you can buy a basket of hundreds of blue chip angel investments mm-hmm. sort of have a small but high risk portfolio mm-hmm. but high return portfolio mm-hmm. uh in silicon valley new york and and similar technology startups uh but the word still has to get out people mm-hmm. are just still used to investing in the very few things that they know and and certainly regulations don't make it easier it makes it a lot harder mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so i think we've we've done we've done i'd say we've done 10 to 15% of what could be done mm-hmm. uh some of that is limited by regulations some of that is limited by just it takes time our mm-hmm. funds have to show returns the early ones are showing really good returns but it takes time mm-hmm. they have to realize returns it has to be you know victories and i think i think you know uh, a decade or so out from now or maybe two decades from now it'll be standard for most households to say okay we're going to have a small percentage of our holdings mm-hmm. call it 2 3 4 5% mm-hmm. in a high risk high return technology portfolio because mm-hmm. technology is what moves the human race forward mm-hmm. it's how you increase productivity and and create wealth and 
fundamentally from the first stone axe or bone to the fire you know we we as monkeys have only advanced because of technology <laughs> so if <laughs> you're not investing in technology you're not <laughs> investing in the future so <laughs> I, I think <laughs> we're moving it forward <laughs> but it's going to be a long time <laughs> it's not a it's not a quick <laughs> process <laughs> Uh, uh, earlier today, uh, Naval, I, I met someone and uh, uh, I told this person that I'm going to be talking to you late in the night and I asked the person, uh, what does he think of you? And one of the things he said is, uh, you are seen as too founder friendly. And uh, I mean, not really critical, but this person was like, sometimes that not that's not really good. No, no prizes for guessing that, of course. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, no founder is ever going to say two founders. Find me one founder who says this investor is two founders. Um, so this, that's obviously a VC topic. That's obviously someone who's on the other side of the equation. So I'm just going to dismiss that outright. The reality is founders are... Founders are the lifeblood of technology, business, and entrepreneurship. Mm. You know, without founders, none of this would happen. Mm. They have the hardest job. Mm. They have mm. to have the vision. Mm. It's extremely difficult to be a founder. So, heck yes, I am quote unquote too <laughs> founder friendly. I will take that badge any day. Uh, look, the, 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 some of the best venture firms mm. built in the last decade yep. in in the Bay Area and Silicon Valley have all been built because they were too founder friendly. Y Combinator was very founder friendly. Yes. First Round Capital is very founder friendly. Andreessen Horowitz is very mm. founder friendly. Mm. Angel mm. is very founder friendly. Mm. It's, you know, a true venture is founder friendly. What do you, the su- whole super angel crowd, mm. the floodgates, super founder friendly. What mm. do you do for the founders? We are in the business of serving the founders. Mm. And mm. if you as an investor think that you're in any other business, mm. then you don't know, you don't know what your business you're in. Mm. I, I, I was on a board recently for a company with John Doerr and mm-hmm. Mike Moritz and these yes. are the top of the top. Right? Yes. Mike Moritz runs Sequoia of Capital, course. John Doerr runs Kleiner Perkins. Yes. They're probably both billionaires, incredibly successful. Mm. By all rights, they should be retired. They True. should be princes and kings. Mm. I have never been on such a founder-friendly board. Mm-hmm. They were so founder-friendly, it blew me away. It made me feel like I wasn't founder-friendly enough. <laughs> so I think founder-friendly is the table stakes to be a good investor. Mm. Uh, and if you as an investor, if you as an entrepreneur, if you're a good entrepreneur, mm-hmm. you have choices. Mm-hmm. And if you have choices, why would you take money from someone who isn't founder-friendly? Yeah. Because the truth is when you when you take money from someone, you're essentially, it's worse than getting married. You're contractually locked in mm. in a way that you cannot undo. Mm. And this person will have control over you through protective provisions and vetoes and all kinds of fancy legal documents. Mm. They own you. They control you whether mm. you like it or not. Mm. And, mm. and you should try and negotiate that out. That's why we wrote Venture Hacks back in the day. Yes. My old blog. Yes. But even if you even if you negotiate some of it out, you'll never negotiate all of it out. So mm. it really mm. matters to you what is this person's philosophy, mm. what is their ethos. Mm. And mm. look, I have I have definitely lost money, mm. and I've definitely been uh, you know not cheated. Cheated is a strong word, but I've definitely uh, been in a bad situation because founders took advantage of me mm. as an investor. Mm. But for every such incident I've seen, I've seen ten incidents where the uh, where the investor takes advantage of me oh, yeah. because they have mm. they have more power. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think, and the and and the founder is focused on building their business, whereas mm-hmm. the investor is often focused on financial games and mm-hmm. is better at it when it comes down to these kinds of financial showdowns. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. two founder friendly is an oxymoron. <laughs> uh, I, just, I just don't believe in the concept. Uh, final uh, two questions, Naval. Uh, the the uh, the next one is about uh, incubators and accelerators. Uh, some people are, are calling it the death of 
accelerators uh what do you make of the whole accelerator you know accelerator landscape uh and incubators uh do you think they will continue to be relevant uh, uh i'm I, a lot of uh, that i'm asking uh, now is also based on what i see play around here so so it it may not be a true picture but what do you think of it yeah so it's, it's a very complex topic i mean for one thing for a little while uh, having an accelerator was too lucrative mm-hmm. you had too much equity for doing too little and putting in too little cash so mm-hmm. everyone rushed into that business and it got really crowded um, secondly you know there's only a few accelerators that make a huge difference like Y Combinator Angel Pad or 500 there's a few of them that sort of have the brand reputation investor pool to actually make a difference in your financing mm-hmm. and a lot of them just don't so it sort of doesn't make sense to, to be in most accelerators uh, it's also it's a new graduate school it's mm-hmm. going to an accelerator is still better than I think going to graduate school unless you're getting a technical degree mm-hmm. because you're getting paid instead of you're paying in and you're getting to create jobs instead of going to get expect to go get a job and you're learning how to create a business so mm-hmm. I, I think they definitely have their place mm-hmm. uh, they're also creating they're also filling a funding gap because mm-hmm. VCs don't really invest in uh, pre-product businesses anymore mm-hmm. so if you're pre-product and maybe even pre-customer traction mm-hmm. uh, venture capitalists will tell you you're too early so that, that gap needs to be filled from somewhere and there usually just aren't enough angel investors. Angel investors don't have enough capital. Mm-hmm. So the accelerators can sort of be an institutional way to kickstart you. That said, I think it's like going to college. Mm-hmm. I think most college in, in the U.S., now I'm speaking, and obviously I'm speaking as sure. a person who's you know, gotten somewhere else in life, but I think most college is a waste of time. Unless you're getting a technical degree from a really good institution, mm-hmm. that's four years of time and money and effort that you could have probably better spent elsewhere. Mm-hmm. This may not be true in India right now. Sure. I don't know the situation there. But sure. in the U.S., mm-hmm. like rather than going and getting a history degree from a second-tier school, I'd rather just go start a business. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, if you're going to a top-tier school or you're getting a technical degree, mm-hmm. then college can be very useful. Useful. Mm-hmm. So the same way, if you're going to a top-tier accelerator, mm-hmm. uh, or if you're working with really great mentors, and you know they give you access to customers mm-hmm. or to um, to um, uh, talent or to money that you wouldn't have gotten otherwise, then it's worthwhile. Mm-hmm. But generally, I think you have to treat uh, accelerators just like you would treat the decision of. You know, should I go to graduate school or not? Mm-hmm. You don't need to go to grad school to be successful in life. Mm-hmm. I never went to graduate school. Mm-hmm. Most mm-hmm. successful entrepreneurs I know have not. Mm-hmm. Um, it can help you out for mm-hmm. very specific things if you mm-hmm. go to a top school. Mm-hmm. Uh, but be very careful. If you, people who throw away five, six, seven percent of their company mm-hmm. uh, to these accelerators, uh, and, or the worst is like when they go to multiple accelerators. Yeah. What they're basically signaling to you is they're saying, "I don't value my equity." Oh, yes. And they're signaling, so therefore, I'm not in it for the long haul. Mm. And that's the most negative signal you can send an investor. Mm. You want to send a very positive signal. So I think you have to evaluate the accelerators. I don't think there's a death or life to accelerators. Mm-hmm. There's always going to be a few great accelerators. There's always going to be a bunch of not very good accelerators. Mm-hmm. And the mm-hmm. only way to know which ones are great mm-hmm. is to let them compete. So sure. you, you're just always going to have to, it's just like startups. Like sure. if, I go, if we knew which 5% of startups were going to succeed, mm. we wouldn't need to create the other 95%. True. But we True. have to create all of them just to figure out which ones are going to succeed. Mm. The same thing applies to accelerators. Mm. Um, so I think it's a, it's, it's a Darwinian process. Mm-hmm. It's good to have options for founders. Mm-hmm. Founders should be skeptical and mm-hmm. they should not default go into accelerators. But I, I do think they serve a very useful purpose, mm-hmm. especially given that most VCs have now abdicated their role of funding a very early 
early stage startup so somebody has yeah. to do that yeah yeah final question uh, navel uh, i'm not sure how much uh, do have you been tracking uh, you know what's happening in indian startup ecosystem and so on but uh, you know i mean this is the year when uh, you look at uh, sachin bansal uh, at flipkart and bini bansal at flipkart on one hand and on the other hand <clears throat> you meet a lot of of you know first time entrepreneurs uh, wannabe entrepreneurs looking at this whole thing and you know sitting at the fences thinking what to do now these are two extremes i see uh, you know this year play out uh, in india uh, what would you tell these two set of people uh, from where you are yeah the, this business always goes in cycles Hmm. Uh, people seem like geniuses people seem like idiots hmm. the correct thing to do always seems to be uh you know uh, you're a big company you're going to w- win everything then there's a year where it's like small companies are disrupting everything hmm. uh, i would just say ignore the macro noise mm-hmm. you have to have your own, own internal clock you have to have your own internal conviction mm-hmm. and most of what's going on in the rest of the world is just noise mm-hmm. uh it matters on the margin but your business should never be on the margin mm-hmm. your business should you know you should either be doing something that you feel you have conviction for and is going to do great or if it's failing recognize it early shut down and move on to the next mm-hmm. one mm-hmm. um there's it's very very easy to uh talk down to and make fun of first time entrepreneurs mm-hmm. you know it's mm-hmm. very very easy like i hate this term entrepreneur it's mm-hmm. used in the us too but i hate mm-hmm. the term mm-hmm. yes some people are you know not necessarily ready yet to be entrepreneurs sure. but long term where do we come up with this idea that the that the correct logical thing to do is for everybody to be working for somebody else mm-hmm. that's just a very hierarchical status model mm-hmm. humans evolved as hunter gatherers when we all work for ourselves mm-hmm. it's only with the beginnings of agriculture that we sort of became more hierarchical True. the industrial revolution of factories made us extremely hierarchical because mm-hmm. one individual couldn't necessarily own or build a factory mm-hmm. but now thanks to the internet we're going back to an age where more and more people can work for themselves mm-hmm. i would rather be a failed entrepreneur mm-hmm. than be someone who never tried because <laughs> even a failed entrepreneur has a skill set to make it on their own True. they may not create a huge business with lots of employees hmm. but they'll always be able to get by working for themselves and by themselves and they will have achieved human freedom in their work ethic in yes. their work life why yes. is that not a great goal hmm. so i don't i don't view uh, to me entrepreneurs are never failures a, a given entrepreneurial effort might be a failure you may overreach you may overshoot you may do something you're not ready for uh but if you're persistent if you're smart and if you have sales skills or technical skills then i think long term it's completely fine to be an entrepreneur hmm. right now the percentage of entrepreneurs that we have in society percentage of people in indian society for example who are entrepreneurs is probably vanishingly small it's like yeah. a tenth of a percent or hmm. less right hmm. um even if you were to count small businesses it's still probably less than well less than 1% hmm. we should be encouraging more of that everyone should have everyone should have the ability to create something and work for themselves hmm. the the idea that you're going to go work for somebody else and be a cog in a machine that's hmm. the aberration hmm. that's the pathology that's hmm. the thing that we should be questioning not hmm. the other way around hmm. um and i and i and i know the same people who say that i'm too founder friendly are the same people who are saying there are too many entrepreneurs because they don't want competition hmm. right at the end of the day it's people who don't want competition who make statements like this yep. uh i say don't be afraid to compete get out there in the ring Mm-hmm. to the entrepreneurs i would say there's one very simple distinction mm-hmm. between being a entrepreneur and being an entrepreneur mm-hmm. which is just 
do you have the skill set? Mm-hmm. Are you ready? And mm-hmm. that's up to you. Mm-hmm. So I would encourage every entrepreneur to either be world class at selling. Yeah. And if and every, everyone thinks they're world class at selling, yes. but be objective about it. If you can't raise money, if you can't convince customers, if mm-hmm. you can't convince people to join you, then you're not world class at selling. Uh, or be amazing at technology. Mm. We, the, mm. Most of what we're talking about here is a technology business. Mm. So you have to be very good with the tools for technology. Mm-hmm. Even if you're a salesy CEO, I, uh, entrepreneur, I still think it wouldn't hurt to take a few computer science classes <laughs> or learn to code or mm. take some mathematics or physics. Mm. Because mm. Uh, you know, math is the language of nature. At the end of the day, we're trying to alter nature to conform to society's will. Uh, and to do that, you have to understand how things really work. Mm, the tools mm. that we use are computers today. Mm. Um, those tools might change tomorrow, mm. but what won't change is the underlying mathematics, the physics, and today there's computer science. So learn those things. If mm. you if you know a bit about technology and you're good at sales, mm-hmm. you will not be an entrepreneur. You won't mm. fail. You'll mm. succeed. It's just a question of which endeavor and when and mm. how. Mm. Uh, mm. But mm. but the the fact that you will succeed at some point is mm. is I don't think. Uh, in debate. But but some founders, uh, Naval, in, in India, some of the large uh, startup founders are, are beginning to say, you know, and, and come up with these arguments about, hey, look at China, uh, the way they protected their uh, homegrown entrepreneurs. And, and, and why, why should India be so open? Uh, and I'm bringing this question because of what you were mentioning while answering the last question about uh, you know, entrepreneurs should be you know focused on building world-class uh, businesses and products. Uh, how? Uh, what do you make of that argument? Because uh, I think over the past few months, this is gaining a lot of momentum with the likes of Flipkart. Oh, so, no, you're talking about Amazon competing. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I don't, I, I don't believe in protectionism. I know China does it to some extent, uh, but the, in India's case, it will, it will backfire. Hmm. There's, there's two issues. One is. At the end of the day, so the consumer, so Amazon's network effect, hmm. and Amazon doesn't even have a strong network effect. Hmm. Something like uh, you know Google has a powerful network effect, hmm. right? Hmm. That applies across borders. Amazon's network effect doesn't really apply across borders. Amazon has to get in here and build new processes, new warehouses, new employees, new everything from scratch. Hmm. So uh, you know, to the extent that people are choosing them, it's because they're providing a better customer experience. Hmm. This is how Amazon crushed it in the U.S. Hmm. So I would say just compete. You know, compete in the market and stop demanding protectionism for the government hmm. uh, because protectionism hurts the consumers. It hurts the average Joe, hmm. um, you know, a, a who's who's less vocal, who's less likely to lobby, less likely to speak to newspapers, hmm. Hmm. but who is being hurt regardless by protectionism. Yep. The other people who are being hurt by protectionism are the companies themselves because hmm. what's going to happen is if you're protected and mm-hmm. you build your business in India, mm-hmm. you're then building a weaker business mm-hmm. because you never had to compete on the global stage. Mm-hmm. And because you're building a weaker business, mm-hmm. one, you're you're now vulnerable to protectionism. Mm-hmm. The protectionism goes away, your mm-hmm. business is going away. Mm-hmm. And secondly, you're not going to be able to expand and compete in the global marketplace. Mm-hmm. And the Chinese companies always have a hard time breaking out the global marketplace mm-hmm. because they are not native English speakers. Mm-hmm. And their their local market is large enough to sustain them for a long time. Mm-hmm. Whereas in India, the local market is still growing up. It's mm-hmm. still not large enough mm-hmm. you know, in terms of people who are wealthy enough and have mm-hmm. enough internet access. Mm-hmm. And 
Indians are English speaking. Hmm. So an Indian company, in theory, that does really well could hmm. compete in the global marketplace and win globally. Yep. And by being protectionist, you're closing all of that off. Hmm. Um, hmm. But I, I just think, in general, protectionism is just sort of a, uh, you know, it, 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 there, there are cases where it may be called for. Mm -hmm. But those are highly, highly specific cases. Mm -hmm. If somebody has a global network effect mm -hmm. that makes it really hard to compete with them, mm -hmm. and if the what well, a service they're providing, you know, it's something that you want to create a level playing field in, mm -hmm. then I think there are things you can do to create a level playing field. Mm -hmm. But you don't necessarily have to do that in a protectionist basis. Yeah, um, you could even just say, hey, if anybody in this. Uh, you could pick an industry that is known for network effects, like you know, like an eBay, for example. Yes. You could say if somebody wants to compete in that market mm -hmm. uh, in India, whether they're local or whether they're a foreign player, they must be open in the following ways, mm -hmm. right? So you can mm -hmm. lay that out, but but deliberately favoring domestic companies over foreign companies, uh, I think that's just uh, you know <laughs> that, that that whole thing has been tried before. Mm -hmm. uh, it mm -hmm. sort of gets done by the worst economies in the worst situation. Yeah. Not something yep. we want to encourage. I agree with you. Uh, it's it's been so so exciting talking to you, Naval, and and some great life lessons uh, in this conversation, and uh, some brilliant insights about building business and being a founder. Uh, more power to you, Naval. Uh, thanks for talking, and like I said, I'm going. I hope uh, we amplify some of this, uh, you know, messages and key insights uh, that we captured today. And I really hope others learn from them, and uh, you know, carry on with their journeys. Thank, thanks so much, Naval. Really yeah. appreciate this. Thank you for having me. I just want to add on one last thing, which is to the extent that I'm talking about the Indian ecosystem. Yes. I don't know anything. I, I've spent no time in the Indian tech ecosystem. So mm -hmm. Flipkart versus accelerators versus what people should do in India, mm -hmm. I have no idea. So you can discard all those comments if you don't agree with them. Uh, that's just another random person's opinion. Sure. Uh, but I do know what's worked in Silicon Valley. Yes. And in that sense, it's at least, it's at least a model yes. for the rest of the world to yes. take as its default. And yes. if you want to deviate from it, yes. you know, deviate for good reasons, but understand what the model is and why it works. Uh, yes. And I, I actually think India is going to be the second largest uh, you know, tech ecosystem in the world, maybe third, depending mm -hmm. on China. But mm -hmm. uh, as we talked about, China is inherently limited yes. because of the... Uh, because of the uh, the language barriers and, and the barriers that they throw up, so I think the Indian tech ecosystem is going to be incredibly exciting a yes. decade from now. Yes, uh, and it already is incredibly exciting. And so people who are in it are mm -hmm. uh, going to be fabulously wealthy, and we mm -hmm. just keep growing it. Mm -hmm. And there's mm -hmm. no downside to yeah. it. So yeah. uh, I'm proud to be uh, you know an Indian American. Yes, uh, and I, I do look forward to spending more time in India once I've got yeah. a little bit of a breather from each of us. Having me and giving me this no, look forward Thank to you. catching up in person. You take care. Thanks so much, Naval.